Gary Steingart, this is your sixth book, Yay. almost 20 years after the Russian Debutantes Handbook. And I keep thinking mm-hmm. about that number and going, how is that possible? Oh, that's not so bad. It works out to, what, three, four years a book? I think that's, you know... In the old days, you know, writers would produce a book like every year, like uh, only Joyce Carol Oates does that now, but back in the old days. I know, but it still feels like it was yesterday that I read Russian Debutantes. I'm perhaps feeling a little long in the tooth, too, because honestly, Our Country Friends, which is your new novel, it is the November Barnes & Noble book club pick. Yeah, it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. It's very funny, but it's mellower than anything <laughs> I think you've written so far. And I really want to talk about this. You've taken eight characters. You've put them in a country house in upstate New York. It is set against the backdrop of the pandemic. But can we talk about how this book started for you and how sure. it got so mellow? Well, a couple of things happened. I think partly, you know, people mellow with age. Uh, mm-hmm. I started writing Russian Debutante when I was in college. So I was 20, 21, something like that, mm-hmm. right? Published in my 20s. And when you're in your 20s, you're sort of just screaming into the wind, look at me, I got something to say. And as an immigrant from the former Soviet Union, you're sort of going from one failing superpower to another. It just felt like oh, this story is very important. When I was first writing that, there weren't any Russian-American novelists of my generation. There were wonderful Korean-American, Dominican-American, Bengali-American, Chinese-American writers who have already been out there. But from the Russian-Americans, the last person really was Nabokov, of great note, who was living in, in, in America. So I kind of wanted to get into there. And I thought, I would make it the loudest, you know, what, what do they say, you know, use your inside voice. I wasn't, I was using my outside voice. But as the years continue, I, I guess I have mellowed, but also having a child, which I did uh, eight years ago, that mellows you a little bit. You know, just going out and drinking less. And before I had a kid, I would travel incessantly, you know, and I was a contributing editor to Travel and Leisure. So the books like Absurdistan, which is probably my loudest book, it was my second book, which was just out and out crazy satire. You know, all that began to give way to a quieter, maybe more familial, after many years, decades of of psychoanalysis, more of an examination of my parents and how immigrant parents raise their kids and uh, questions like that. So we're in the Hudson Valley. Mm -hmm. We have Sasha Senderovsky and his wife, Masha, and their daughter, Nat, and then a couple of his friends from high school, Karen, who's gone on to great success. And Vinud, who has had lesser success. And then there's Ed, who they seem to have picked up at a party back in the day. <laughs> yeah, although he's they, there's 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 hints that he's very distantly related to Karen. They're both from from Korea. Okay. And he's kind of a bon vivant. At, at one point, another character describes him as Korean Brideshead Revisited, which is pretty accurate. <laughs> it's a great Thank you. line. Yeah, I think I think that's kind of him. <laughs> Korean Brideshead Revisited, yeah. And then you've got a published writer called D, who's one of Senderovsky's former students, who yeah. may or may not think her teacher is a bit of a bonehead. Yeah. And then there's a character that we know only as the actor. Yeah. All right. So how did you arrive at these eight? Because they're pretty fantastic. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So so this started in March of 2020 when I found myself where I'm sitting right now up in the Hudson Valley, uh, about 100 miles north of New York City. And I was quarantining as I was with my family and uh, some very good friends of mine also live nearby. But many of my friends 
were either in New York or in Berlin or you know just scattered all over the world. And I began to miss them quite a bit. And during the sort of enforced sadness of the quarantine, I began to imagine them in my mind populating this country place where I spend uh, the bulk of the year. And it, Sasha, the landowner, has four little cabins or bungalows. And I grew up in a Russian bungalow colony. That was my favorite part of growing up because I didn't speak any English when I came here and everyone hated me. You know, I was the commie, as they called us, because I was from the Soviet Union. But up here, which is not far, it's not too far from where I am right now, this bungalow colony. Everyone spoke Russian and nobody made fun of me because we were all Russian. I've always wanted to live up here. I've always wanted to get away from New York and live up here. And so in my mind, in my lonely mind, I began to populate. I only have one guest cabin, but in my mind, I built three more on the property. I, my wife would kill me if I did that. But, you know, I built uh, three more in my imagination and populated them with all of these different friends that I have. Art is not supposed to be therapy. I know that's a very American conceit that you write because you want to get through stuff. I mean, maybe you get do get through stuff, but in my mind, I wanted to make sure that it remained an artistic project, not a therapeutic project for me, because we were all going through a lot during the pandemic. But I also began to feel quite guilty because there were so many people I knew who were down in the city. And that's what happens to all of the characters who come up. They all begin to feel very guilty about being away while people are actually dying, especially because they all come from Queens, from Elmhurst and Jackson Heights. And I grew up not far from those neighborhoods as well, a little bit far and a little deeper into Queens. So I definitely felt a connection. And the people I populated with, so we're talking about, I mean, a lot of nobody's a direct replication of somebody who actually exists. But definitely, I know people who, I mean, so many of the people I grew up with were from Asia. I went to a Stuyvesant High School, which is right now a very predominantly Asian high school. It was probably more than 50% so when I was growing up. And so a lot of my friends are immigrants like myself, but from India, from, in fact, there really was a study linking the immigrants that are in this book, which are Korean, Soviet, Gujarati, you know, that specific in India. And I think it was West Africans. And that's the one group that is missing from the book. For some reason, they form friendships. They have formed friendships in different parts of America and Canada, I think. So there was something about that that interested me because so many of my friends share very similar experiences. Uh, obviously, every immigrant group is different, but there's some things that unite them, some concepts that feel very familiar, which is maybe why we're all such good friends. So a lot of these characters we noticed from Gujarat originally and settled, his family settled in Jackson Heights. Karen Cho is Korean-American. Ed is the son of a, a minor Chaebol family. Chaebols are the large Korean conglomerates like Samsung or LG, you know. So he's the bon vivant that you were mentioning, and he doesn't really do anything. He sometimes has these magazines that he funds that don't really go anywhere. And he came from, when I was living in Italy, I, I met a lot of aristocrats, and they all had these projects that made no sense and never went anywhere. But so he was kind of the basis for that. And he doesn't even have a Korean passport, I think, or an American one. He's British, Canadian. And Swiss or something like that, one of those kinds of people. So anyway, I thought it'd be fun to sort of just mix them all in there, stir as one does with a martini glass. And a lot of alcohol gets consumed during the course of this book, along with some really delicious recipes. I mean, and I, I actually stole some from my friends and I thank them in the acknowledgments because my friends who come here, they cook these amazing meals. I'm, I'm a terrible cook, but we grill all these different things. And there's this Vitello Tonato recipe that I think is just, if you if you buy this book for anything, just buy it for the recipes. It's, it's delicious. Grilled sardines, yum, yum, yum. Anyway, so I kind of mixed them all in. And then I took this kind of very much more imaginary character. Although I do know some people, uh, I've worked in you know the TV industry. So I kind of brought in this actor. And you know, like you mentioned, he's just called the actor. And he's sort of the uh, troublemaker. And he comes in and he creates, not to give anything away, but all these different love triangles. So that's sort of where it started from. Wait, so then when did D show up? 
because she's Ooh. a former student. Right. D also D, D is another character that I that I came up with, and D is sort of a, a amalgamation of all the different. She's very importantly from North and South Carolina. It doesn't even say where; it just says the Carolinas. And she is uh, really I, I've known so many Southern people in my life. In fact, my very first ever girlfriend was from North Carolina, and it's funny. I remember we used to have this writers group, uh, and we called ourselves like the Immigrant Writers Group. And it was uh, myself, a Russian. It was two Indian Indian Americans. It was one Austrian American, and then there was a Texan. And the Texan was the weirdest of them all, you know, because he just was like, "What the hell's going on?" I and so similarly here, you know, D should be more of an insider in the sense that she was born in this country, grew up here, obviously, but confronted with all these immigrants who are banding around all these different terms. She almost feels a little bit like the outsider herself. So she's published a collection of essays that's kind of incendiary. She's supposedly of the left, but she flirts with the right. She's very complicated, but she's basically trying to get attention. That's all she needs. So she stirs up trouble in order to get, you know, back on the bestseller lists and stuff like that and uses social media, etc. So she adds a little bit of maybe modernity to this whole thing because she's also about a decade younger than these characters who are in their 40s and she's in her 30s. So were you writing this in real time then? Yes. Yeah. Dude. I know. I know. But again, you know, I was bored. There was nothing going on. You know, I was either going to get really drunk by myself or with a couple of friends who would drop by who were sort of in our quarantine community or write a book. It was complete dissolution or or writing a, a novel. And I think if I was in my 20s, I'd probably just get trashed. But, you know, now that I'm a father and, uh, you know, a mortgage holder, I, you know, I'm trying to, <laughs> trying to get things done the right way. So I wrote this book pretty much in real time. Yeah. Did you write it linearly or did you just sort of bounce between moments and then string them together later? Completely linearly, page by page, because also things happen in the book in a linear way. I mean, all the convulsions that America goes through, first the pandemic convulsions, but then obviously the political uh, things that began to happen. The murder of George Floyd uh, has some role in the book. Uh, Anti-Asian violence appears in there in some way. So the book really does track all the things that happen sort of between March and September of that very fateful year, 2020. And I know you mentioned earlier, art is not supposed to be therapy, but you hit a lot of really big emotional moments in this book. And we are obviously staying spoiler free. This conversation mm-hmm. is going to air on your pub date so people can mm-hmm. discover for themselves. You're talking about love. You're talking about money and success and loneliness. Right. And as you also yeah. mentioned guilt. Yeah. Yes. Love, success, loneliness, guilt. Obviously, these things belong to every single person on the planet. Mm-hmm. But to me, there's a kind of poignancy to it on an immigrant basis. When I did return to a high school reunion, I don't remember how many years, God, oh God, 25, I don't know, it's been a while, 30. I don't remember where this was, but I was struck by that so many of the people I remember from high school became super successful, but there was still a kind of sadness that accrued to the fact that I think their parents are still writing them, you know, <laughs> half a billion, where's the other half a billion, right? Which was exactly how we were when we were kids in, at Stuyvesant, you know, 98, where's the other 2% on a test or something like that. So there, it felt like it was an endless treadmill of things. In my memoir, A Little Failure, which is about growing up, you know, there's a scene where there's like a list of top 25 American writers and I come in at, I don't know, 22 or something. And my dad's like, what happened? You know, David Remnick is at three. 
Paul Gorevich is at seven, you know, these are also Jews. What happened to you? 22? This is horrifying, you know. So I think that kind of never-ending quest for success, trying to please the parent, never quite pleasing the parent. I think all of these characters go through that. Now, I will say also that, you know, usually I deal with younger immigrants uh, in almost all of my books, but here... Uh, they're older, so there is a little bit more distance. I mean, it's it's first couple of books I wrote were really about exploring the the, the parent-child immigrant relationship, but this one I think is more about friendship. It's I, you know I think that my friends and I, who are all from these different immigrant cultures, came together because we were trying to parent ourselves. Our parents were very well-meaning, but they often had no really salient advice to give us because they all came from these countries that were convulsed by history in such a terrifying way, You know, whether it's Korea or India after partition or certainly the Soviet Union or China after the Cultural Revolution. I mean, you know, all of these countries had suffered millions of deaths. And I think our parents, as well-meaning as they were, were living these very blinkered in some ways lives. They were just scared because scared was their natural tendency. So when, you know, when those of us who struck out as artists began to do so, obviously their fear was always magnified. Well, if you fail, what then? You know, you'll starve. They'll kill you or something. You know, that was in the back of their minds that failure was um, just not acceptable. Friendship too. I feel like we don't talk about friendship enough in culture. It's always family, 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 family. And you know, family can be complicated, family can be messy, and family can also be, frankly, boring. And yeah, friendship, yeah. it gets messy fast. I mean, never mind crossing, and there are lots of love triangles in this book, which is hysterical. Oh, Thank you. It's great watching these characters actually puzzle out friendships that have happened over time and how they've changed and how they haven't changed yeah, as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I really began to think of friendship because, again, I was with my, you know, my family, my wife and my son. So family was, I mean, everyone, you know, of course, got tired of each other during the pandemic, the early days anyway, before we could go out at all. So that was definitely a concern. So, yeah, that writing about family felt a little bit like, I mean, that would be too, too much. But my friends, especially, I began to think of our friendships, you know, and I talked to my friends, on, you know, on, on Skype or whatever, and, I, and and really they are scattered all over the world at this point. And we're not sentimental or overly sentimental people by nature, I think. But we began to fall into these sort of sentimental loops. I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine, and this is it's not much of a spoiler alert, but you know, there's a scene where these two characters talk about how back in the '80s when they were friends, they would watch The Simpsons together, and they would call each other and watch it in real time and exchange jokes about what Homer and Bart were doing, which seems so bizarre now, right? Because you know, you sit there with your princess phone or whatever. And, and you'd be talking about all this stuff. And all those memories began flooding back, all those memories of friendship, because I think people were lonely for each other. I mean, what happens with friendship, I think, is that a lot of people become successful. Some, an even greater number of people don't. Um, when you grow up, everyone has dreams. Well, I mean, there's lucky people who don't have gigantic dreams. I do know a couple of people like that who just, you know, they're just happy doing whatever, you know, they find something to do. It, it doesn't, it's not the huge inspiration in their lives, but you know, in Europe, people work to live here. Obviously we do the opposite, but a lot of my friends who I grew up with were, were of an artistic temperament. And now, as, you know, as we approach beyond just early middle age, as we get older, you know, society issues a kind of scorecard of how everyone is doing. And that adds a sadness to friendships. And, and, and I think this is partly an exploration of that. And and, you know, without giving away too much, there is a, a betrayal that happens and mm-hmm. that, that happened a long, long time ago. And that's part of what becomes sort of the, the engine of the book later on. And, and, and then the question becomes, what do we owe our friends? You, know? you have a great line that actually D delivers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I wasn't expecting D. it from D, I have to say. 
but she's talking about how the rest of the cast sees their parents right and their parents roles and she asked how much was history and how much was them and i think mm-hmm. it's a line that actually can be sort of thrown at your characters as well that mm-hmm. it's not just about their parents so Let's mm-hmm. talk about Sasha and Masha. Nat is an eight-year-old and she's terrific. Mm-hmm. She's a really mm-hmm. fun character, but she's mm-hmm. eight. But we've got Ed and we've got Karen and we've got Vinud. Can we just talk about their characters and where we think that came from? I mean, yeah, they're all yeah. immigrants, but yeah. they do have slightly different outcomes. Yeah, it's really fascinating to me. I mean, the question of was it history or was it them as applied to parents specifically, the question really that, I mean, if I had to distill all of my books, except maybe Lake Success, well, even that has an immigrant plot line. But I would say that is the biggest question to me, right? Mm-hmm. How much of my parents and all of the things they do and say, how much of that is their uniqueness and how much of them is the fact that they were born as Hitler and Stalin were ravaging the Soviet Union as their own. My grandfather was killed in battle. My mother's family was eviscerated by the Holocaust. And then they grew up in this horrifying system. How much of it was that? You know, When I do readings and I go around the country, I often meet a lot of Russian-Americans of my generation. And this especially happened when I wrote my memoir, Little Failure. The signings, they would come up and they would they would read a line from there where something, you know, insane would happen, right? And they would say, my mother did or said the same exact thing. And it was very cathartic in a sense because it, it more heavily laid, I don't want to say the blame, but the, the answer to what they were, what history had done to them, right? So that only a parent growing up in, you know, the European part of Russia would end up doing a similar thing. And, you know, I don't want to speak for other friends from other cultures, but I do think there are certain things that can only explain by, you know, watching your brother be killed during the Korean War or, you know, I'm talking about parents, you know, or, or be purged under the Cultural Revolution in China. I mean, all these things are very particular, but there's so much of, of the, the fears, what, what to us feels like irrational stuff, maybe to somebody who survived those things is quite rational. I remember my mom, when I first moved to Manhattan, and I would have friends visiting over and she would stop by before my friends would come over and I would have quarters or nickels in an ashtray, you know, that I would use for laundry. And she would say, put those away. You know, you have friends coming. You know, <laughs> And I'd be like, but wait a minute. My friends, one who became a dentist, another became an economist, these thieves of quarters and nickels, right? But I guess if you grow up in a starving country, you know, and you never know what's going to happen next, I guess those quarters are meant to be stolen, even by a well-meaning future dentist, right? So that's sort of the understanding that I think a lot of these characters go through. Now, when applied to all of these characters, so yeah. I mean, the other part of it is often it accounts for incredible success. The Sergey Brin scenario, right? Or all the other, you know, the Russian, Asian, et cetera, people who are running so much of Silicon Valley at this point. But again, you know, there's success and there's happiness. And those are two very different things. So when I go back to my high school reunion, on paper, everyone looks amazing. It's probably a million Teslas to go around between us. But, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily mean that people will look back on their lives and see themselves as having lived the life they, they wanted to. There's a lot of melancholy underlying this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there definitely is. And I think a couple of things did that. One was, of course, again, going back to the pandemic. T- to my mind, the pandemic is in the background of this novel. It's not. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm, I'm glad we haven't been really talking about it that much, but it, it was in the background. And obviously, there was a very melancholic 
feel, again, especially since I was living, you know, 100 miles north of where one of the, at one point it was the biggest epicenter of death in the world, you know, and obviously that kept switching around. But as an American, as a New Yorker, all of this felt even even sadder just because of my proximity to it and because I was constantly worried for, for people I knew who were living down there. And I was reading Chekhov a lot. You know, uh, my favorite three stories of Chekhov is sort of a trilogy. I'm trying to think of the English names: Man in the Shell, I think, Gooseberries, and About Love. I think those are the English names for it. But I kept rereading them, and they're all set in the country. I mean, a lot of what Chekhov writes is in the country. They all have this incredibly melancholy feel. They all have, I think, the the protagonists, the characters are in their forties. I could be wrong. I mean, people didn't live that long, so your forties, you know, would probably be like your sixties today. But they were all sort of looking back and telling stories ostensibly about other people. Oh, I know this guy in such and such village, but really talking about themselves and all of the things that they regretted in their lives. So the feeling of regret led to the melancholy, along, of course, with the fact that here I am in a beautiful setting, just like the setting in, in the Chekhov stories. The Russian countryside, especially when it warms up a little bit, is incredibly beautiful because it's endlessly vast. Right. And uh, where I live upstate, thankfully, it's not a suburbanized feel. A little bit to the south, it, it starts to get that way. But we are thankfully for now, at least there's, you know, when I look out my window, I see the meadows and the small hills stretching out into the horizon. That beauty to me feels a bit melancholy. The city never feels melancholy to me. It always, a city like New York is just too noisy to ever really be melancholy. There are very melancholy cities, you know, the further north you go. I mean, to me, Petersburg is a very melancholy city, the city of my birth. Incredibly, something, maybe the White Knights, and I don't know what it is, or, or maybe just the endless historical convulsions that that city goes through makes makes it a very melancholy city. But to me, this, the countryside makes me sad in a good way, if that's a way to, if that's the correct way to put it. I also felt like your characters in the story itself felt a bit melancholy because they realized as the story progressed that they were changing, that they couldn't hold on to everything that they believed. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, again, this is not much of a spoiler, but right after college in my tw- early twenties in a New York restaurant called Florent. I miss that was, place so much. Well, exactly, exactly. I miss that place in ways I didn't even know I could miss a restaurant. <laughs> you know, I mean, I have to say I kind of grew up in that place in yeah. my early twenties. I had just gotten out of Oberlin. Um, it was my real first time really living in Manhattan. It was a wild scene. It was in a meatpacking district. It was a French diner ostensibly, but everyone, prostitutes, truck drivers. I mean, New York was a different city then. You know, everybody was crammed in there, eating mussels and fries, drinking crafts of Beaujolais. I mean, it was a scene, but it was the first. And I got into Oberlin College, which also at times felt a little Florentish, right? If that's magic. It was very... What's the word I'm looking for? It wasn't egalitarian so much because so many of the kids were quite wealthy. I mean, it's a wealthy college. But here, you really had people from every level of society, which is something I terribly miss about New York. The more it becomes more of a sort of corporatized city, you know, the, even middle class people have been priced out of, of much of Manhattan. So when the characters reminisce, they're reminiscing over an era, as all people in their middle age begin to do. That's when it sort of begins to hit. But as you were saying, they also begin to miss who they were. And that's that sense of possibility, you know, because I think by this point, almost all of them have reached the ends of their possibilities, with the exception of one character, but I won't give away what happens. But definitely it's it's a time for reflection. And when you're in your, in your early 20s, that not knowing is its own special thrill. You're also very worried that you're not going to make it, but but you're you're driven by this kind of adrenaline that will never exist again. Social media 
is a little more of the story than the mm-hmm. pandemic. <laughs> there are a couple of different beats that are driven by social media and they're very organic and social media is clearly here mm-hmm. to stay and we all participate in it to whatever level we participate. Mm-hmm. But have we reached a point as a culture where maybe things are moving too fast online and we just can't keep up anymore? Yeah. No, I mean, that's obviously been the the motif, especially in terms of what, uh, you know, the, the political convulsions of the last uh, five, six years. Very clearly, we're not prepared to know what to do with, with social media. Yeah, there's a couple of, of different beats here, as you were saying. One is Sasha's wife is a psychiatrist and she deals primarily with Russian patients. She works for a nonprofit and she reaches out to these Russian patients. And I go to Facebook sometimes and I have these Russian people who follow me and I began to sort of look at their timelines and it was really scary. It was all just disinformation. Bill Gates is going to microchip you with the vaccines and stuff. And what was amazing to me was these are all fairly educated people. You know, Russia, the Soviet Union educated everyone pretty well. You know, Everyone seems to have emigrated with a master's in engineering at least, right? And so it was very surprising that they just completely fell you know, hook, line, and sinker for it. And also all these racist, horrifying memes that began to emerge around the death of George Floyd. So that found its way into the book. But the other part of it is I think that some of these characters sort of follow their worth through social media. And in a way, when the when the book starts, these eight people are stuck together for an extended period of time. And in their individual bungalows, there is no connectivity, right? So it's almost like people are forced to talk. There's only one place where you can really download things. People are forced to communicate and talk. And that builds that esprit de corps, or whatever you want to call it. All of that is built up and they fall in love. All of this stuff happens. But then in the end of the book, social media won't leave them alone and begins to encroach upon them. But for a while, at least, there is this kind of feeling of a, of a paradise, which has been lost, of course, because that's sort of how I feel about social media. I mean, you know, when I think of the happiest moments of being up here for the pandemic, it's being with my family, it's being with friends with whom I formed the pod. And the more trying times was just being constantly involved in social media, tweeting things out, which was a search for connection, but it was the connection was never really fulfilled the way it is when, when there are actually people present. Your earlier books, especially Absurdistan, are really kind of bouncy satires. Mm-hmm. <laughs> bouncy, complicated, they're very funny, mm-hmm. but they're very obviously satire. I mean, yes and no. I mean, I'll say this. Take Absurdistan, for example, which takes place in a war-torn post-Soviet Republic, sort of, you know, think of Azerbaijan or Georgia or one of these countries. And yeah, there's satiric aspects to it, but I spent a lot of time in that part of the world. And what seems like satire to us, actually, sort of most of it happened. I mean, when I meet people from that part of the world and we talk about the book, they're like, oh, you got this, you stole this from that and that, from the, you know. But what happened, I think, maybe part of the mellowing is that when I was writing books like Absurdistan, the absurdity was happening over there and it, ha- it was happening in the place where I had come from. Now the absurdity is here. When I listen to some of the things contemporary politicians say, you know, the the Jewish space laser, for example, right? It's like, wait, if I had written that five years ago as satire, I would have been laughed out of the room. Publishers Weekly would have been like, well, he tries too hard to make things funny, but nobody in their right mind. It's a caricature, blah, blah, blah. Now all this stuff is happening here. 
And maybe that's why it's more difficult because I am an American. I have a child who's an American, you know. I mean, you know, we came here. What the hell do we flee here for when everything is in such a disastrous shape? And I think the characters, because there is a, a young girl, an eight-year-old girl who's adopted from China by Sasha and Masha, and they're looking at her, and one of the characters calls her Generation L as in last because he doesn't think the world's going to make it to that far longer. So it's harder to make fun of all this because A, it already comes pre-satirized, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and B, it hurts. It hurts too much, you know? You know, I thought Russia would become more like America, not the other way around after the collapse of the Soviet Union. You wrote a memoir, what, seven years ago? It was 2014? Uh, 2014 was published. Yeah, I was in my late 30s when I wrote okay. it. Okay. It's terrific. It's called Little Failure. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> my mom's nickname for me growing up. Yeah. You came to the States when you were seven. And yeah. as you say in the book, you were raised Russian in America. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Why write a memoir I mean, in your late 30s? Late like, 30s. what can you do with memoir that you can't do with fiction? Well, I think what was happening in part was I have a bad memory. I can't remember anything. When I was writing this book, I kept talking to my friends trying to remember things like, you know, talking about The Simpsons on the phone, etc. But I have a terrible memory, and I thought, if I don't write this now, I'm just going to forget all of it. So recently, I don't know, remember why, but I reread Little Failure, and I was shocked because I really couldn't remember half of the things that were in there. So I wanted to talk to my friends and parents and get all that down. And the other part of it is I got a little tired of writing about the Russian-American experience, and I thought that if I had written so much of my own story down, that I wouldn't be able to use that as fiction to the same extent, right? So I think that's one reason I wrote it. And it's true. Now I have to focus on other characters. So that my subsequent book, Lake Success, there was a, a Tamil American immigrant, but the main character was American born, which for me was a shock. And in this book, Sasha and Masha are, are Russian immigrants, but they're only one fourth of the cast. So yeah, definitely, definitely a difference there, I think. So it's obvious that Chekhov has a huge hold on this book for multiple mm -hmm. characters, for tone, for, for lots of different reasons. But can we talk about who some of your other influences have been over time and, and some of those books? Mm -hmm. Well, my mentor in grad school and who helped me publish my first book was Cheng Ray Lee, who's an amazing, amazing person in general, great writer, just had another brilliant book out recently. Yeah, he, I mean, he was in some ways the, the biggest influence because when I went to his program, he was teaching at Hunter College after around that time, he said, you know, the humor, everything's in there, but it needs a little bit more of the blood and guts of the immigrant relationships. And and it's funny because over the years, I think he's gotten funnier, right? And for me, it was quite the opposite. It was all humor all the time, right? So he helped me modulate that. So that was uh, that was interesting. Um, he was a big influence. I'm trying to think of more contemporary novelists. I mean, uh, there's so many great books being written today. I, I think people do still keep reading them. Uh, Luster was wonderful by Raven Leilani. Yep. Um, really great book. Um, I love the outsider's perspective perspective in that too. Obviously, set from young African American woman's perspective, but very kind of cool and sly, but also very vulnerable too. I teach at Columbia at the MFA program, and I want to. Start teaching, of course, on humor, how to how to get humor across and how to make sure that when you're doing humor, you're also doing tragedy as well. Because humor without tragedy or tragedy without humor to me is really an unsatisfactory package. I'm sorry to say that if you give me a book that is deep and meaningful but completely lacks humor, I, I may read it and learn something, but I am not going to put it on my greatest of greatest hits list, you know. Humor gives readers a chance to breathe. And I think it's impossibly important to have, yeah. I feel like you do, if there's not some yeah. humor somewhere. I get a little yeah. itchy. Yeah, I do as well. 
I'm here to have a dialogue with, with a person. And if I'm just going to sit there and look down at my lap while speaking profoundly into my lap, that's not enough for me. I need to uh, speak out and to entertain. Who are some of the authors that would be on that syllabus? I realize you haven't totally figured it out yet. Oh, but there boy. have to be a couple that you would automatically say, oh, right. Yeah, I think I would want to combine old and young, which I try to do in my seminars on sort of on craft. So I would probably throw in from the old school, I would put in Nabokov, who is hilarious. A lot of it is very kind of acidic humor, but that's still wonderful and a master craftsperson, of course. I would throw in the much deceased and much maligned Philip Roth in there. I know these days there's a lot of controversy, especially about his biographer. But I think Portnoy's, I, I've taught Portnoy's in other classes. It's a great, it's a very performative book. I knew mm-hmm. Roth when he was alive, and I, I don't think he would ever think of that as his favorite book. In fact, I think it, it both gave him, you know, this incredible fame, but also kind of restricted everything he wrote afterwards. But I mean, you could, you know, imagine like Dustin Hoffman reading that book aloud, it would be brilliant, right? It's just great. And a lot of people now are writing very performative things. So I'd put that in. And then from younger people, yeah, actually, I, I was thinking Luster would maybe make it on the list. White Teeth, Zadie Smith's White Teeth, which is incredibly funny. Uh, I would put that in there. Um, trying to think. Oh, uh, Fleischman is, is in Trouble would be very good and, and kind of ruffian in its own way. I hope humor is going to make a comeback soon because I've always been, uh, I've always been a huge proponent as a you know, and I think, uh, and I think Russian fiction is growing up with Gogol, um, Dead Souls. Even Dostoevsky can be funny, and he's, you know, one of the most depressed person who has ever wielded a pen. But but Russia kind of inspires humor because the whole thing is so outlandish. The whole country is, was, and will be so outlandish. What do you want readers to know about our country friends? I think exactly what we talked about. Friendship is not discussed often enough. And when it is discussed, it's usually discussed in uh, novels by and about young people, because that's when we think of the formative years. And then we all silo off, uh, or not all, actually, fewer Americans are getting married or having children, especially as people begin to worry about what the future will look like for those children. But I think the important part is that it is about friendship that that supersedes both the love triangles and the pandemic. Those are parts of it. But the important thing is how we begin to reevaluate friendship. And I also hope that younger people do read it because it'll give them a feel of what their future as friends might look like and how they might behave as friends today, because that stuff never quite goes away. So what's next for you? I don't know. I mean, I wrote this book so quickly. It was really, as you were were saying, it was written in real time. So I have no idea what I'm going to do. I have to think of something. Before this book, I was writing another dystopian novel. And it was more like absurdist. NYU and New York University owned half of Manhattan in the book. And they had their own police force. And it was this professor. And he got into all kinds of trouble. So very kind of ha-ha. But then the pandemic overtook that book. And I was like, hell, I'm living in a dystopia. I don't think we need a funny dystopia at this moment. One thing I want to do, I used to be a contributing editor of Travel and Leisure. And those were incredible times. I think Sasha also was, I think, in the book. Yeah. And um, I want to get out and travel a little more. I don't know what will come of that. I have this weird itinerary where I want to go to Tokyo, Copenhagen, Addis Ababa, and something else, I can't remember. But yeah, like I want to string together all these disparate places. And I don't know, will anything come to that? Probably not, but you know, at least I'll get some miles. There's got to be some seriously good food in all of oh, those places. Of I think you are probably yeah. going to eat some insanely great meals. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, if you follow me on Instagram, at Steingart, all I do is pose with martinis and amazing food. That's, <laughs> the, that's, that's the lifestyle for me.
Yeah, I will say for our country friends, best read with snacks at hand because yes. there were moments where I was getting really, really <laughs> hungry. Oh my god! Snacks, oh, you must have snacks. snacks. Cocktails, oh, do whatever, god. but <laughs> yeah, yeah. definitely snacks. I know. I'm um, just thinking about the book. Before yes. I let you go, is there anything you wanted to bring up that we haven't somehow hit? BTS, the Korean boy band, plays a role in this book. So any BTS fans, there's a lot of mentions of Jin, J-Hope and stuff like that. <laughs> it's a global novel set on a porch of a small house. The last thing maybe I wanted to mention was, in addition to a BTS, Terrace House, which I can't recommend it highly enough. It's this hilarious Japanese reality show in which nothing happens for like, I don't know, 500 episodes was a huge inspiration to this. More stuff happens in, in our country, Friends, obviously, but it's this mostly adorable show that I couldn't get enough of. And it plays a small role. And, and I was watching it, you know, so every night my wife and I would watch like three hours of that. And then I'd wake up the next morning and write my book. So there was definitely some overlap. And it all is all about uh, a group of strangers. I guess these aren't strangers with our country friends, but a group of people living together and becoming friends over the course of months uh, in Tokyo and other locations. So yeah, Terrace House makes another great companion to our country friends. <laughs> That's excellent. Gary Steingart, thank you so much. The new novel is Our Country Friends. It is the November Barnes & Noble Book Club pick. It's a really wonderful, smart, oh. weirdly mellow book. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> weirdly mellow is my new hashtag. Yeah, I love it. Thanks again. Now it's time for your TBR Top Off. This is where we add three books to your to-be-read list based on today's interview with Gary Steingart, Our Country Friends. It is our book club selection for November, and we're very excited about it. Uh, my name is James. I'm here in Northville, Michigan at our home store along with... Margie. Say hello, Margie. Hello, Margie. <laughs> and we are here to add books to your list today based on this interview with Gary Steingart. Loved Super Sad True Love Story and, of course, his writing for The New Yorker is very funny. The interview, of course, very entertaining. And uh, his Twitter feed is raucous. So if you don't follow Gary on Twitter, you should follow him on Twitter. So we got three books to add that are in paperback. Margie, take it away. Great. Thank you. Yes. So I also got a chance to be on a meet and greet with Gary Steingart, and it was amazing. He is hilarious and super interesting. I cannot wait to read his new book. Here's some other ones that you may also find interesting. We picked some today that also deal with groups of people. So my first one I have to talk about is called Company. It's by Max Berry. It is set in Zephyr Holdings, which is just a regular old corporate behemoth. And it centers around Stephen Jones, who has just graduated from business school and is all excited to get a job at this big, giant company. But when he gets there, he realizes that he doesn't really know what the company does. He doesn't have any idea. And he starts to realize that nobody else there really knows what's going on either. <laughs> so this is a scathing satire of corporate life. If you have ever worked in a large business and dealt with multiple layers of communication and jargon and just kind of not really knowing exactly what the main point is supposed to be, this is the book for you. So he's got a secretary that apparently makes more money than everybody else in the company. Nobody has seen the CEO. The elevator's missing buttons. The selling staff is selling to people inside the company. Mm. And then he finds out what Zephyr Holdings really does. 
And the second part of the book is him trying to bring them down. And also you get a really special insight into a salesman who has lost his last donut and it's very, very upset about it. And it's actually kind of a big part of the book. If you like funny books that make fun of corporate culture, Company by Max Berry is definitely the book for you. The next book that I wanted to talk about deals with a smaller group. It is more of a nuclear family and then grows out to be encompassing the whole neighborhood. So the second book is called Lights Out in Lincolnwood. It's by Jeff Rodkey. This one is set in a suburban community that's basically all the fathers commute into the city every day and they're big houses and it's just super nice suburban sprawl neighborhood. They all have their own little issues. You know, the husband is worried about his job The daughter is an overachiever that's super worried about her SAT scores and her tennis championships. And the son is worried about this bully at his school. And the wife is worried that people won't leave the house fast enough because she needs to get her first drink of vodka. So on a normal day, they all wake up. They start doing their uh, normal morning routines. And then on his way into the city, Dan is in a train accident because the train stops. And won't move. And nobody knows what's going on. And eventually we realize that all of the technology has stopped. Anything with a chip, it doesn't work. So this normal suburban family now has to deal with a possible calamity. But they don't really want to. And a lot of the time they spend worrying about their regular old problems. This book runs the gamut from super funny to really harrowing. So you've got things like the son who is addicted to vaping and now his vape pen doesn't work because there's a chip in it. (laughs) His first experience with chewing tobacco is very, very funny. (laughs) But then you have Jen, the mother, who has a pretty serious alcohol problem. And as the book progresses, you really start realizing like, oh, this is really bad. And then you have what is a very funny scene of extremely polite looting at a Whole Foods in this very, very wealthy suburban community that is set off by, you know, a whole group of people that have weapons trying to take over and be in control. So it really goes back and forth between humorous and dramatic, and it's a great balance and a really interesting read about normal society stopping and what the average person would do when they're caught in a situation where they can't use technology. And again, that is Lights Out in Lincolnwood, and it's by Jeff Rodkey. And that's kind of the perfect segue into my recommendation. And I'm pulling out an old one from Douglas Copeland, one of my favorite writers when I was a young man. And it is Generation X. If you've never read this book, he's kind of credited with bringing the term into popularity for which my generation is named. This book uh, is really written about, you know, folks who were born in the 60s and kind of into the mid-70s and what it was like to be in your mid-20s before technology, right? Before we had cell phones, before internet was prevalent. And what does it mean to feel kind of overwhelmed by consumerism, overwhelmed by what he calls uh, Mick Jobs? Uh, The main character and his friends all have Mick Jobs Uh, which they don't like. Uh, They end up quitting their jobs and they're dealing with addiction. They're dealing with depression and trying to make sense of 
what type of culture that they're living in and what what is meaning, what is purpose. And I believe he even talks about a mid-20s crisis. He might have even coined that term too. But a mid-20s crisis, like what are you going to do now? You've progressed all the way through high school, college, and your career, and now you're like, oh, I'm 25, and you have to kind of reassess who you are and what what you're about. So this book was deeply meaningful for me, and it's still a great read, especially if you're looking for that time capsule kind of book, Generation X by Douglas Copeland. I highly recommend that one. Well, that's your TBR top off for this week. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today for the interview with Gary Steingart. Check out his new book, Our Country Friends, which is now on sale at your local Barnes & Noble. Stop in, and we'd love to recommend more books to you. Uh, my name is James. You can follow me on Instagram at James Reading Books. And I'm Margie. You can follow me at Margie Bookbrain. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Happy reading. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 